Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful again for the opportunity we have to uh, worship you this morning. And in particular, Father, we have set this part of our service aside to focus on your word. We thank you, Father, for preserving your word for us, for ensuring that we would have a copy of your word that we could have in our hands and that we can read and study and meditate on. We ask, Lord, that as always, that you would speak to us through your word. That you will grant us the ability to not only be able to comprehend those things that are being communicated, but Father, along with that, that you give to us a very strong desire to want our lives to be challenged and to be changed by what your word says. Father, we ask that you would fill us with your wisdom. We are grateful for, the, again, giving us your word and preserving it for us. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I, who am humble and face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. As Paul moves on in his letter... He is continuing to address this group of individuals, these, in a sense, they're really outsiders, uh, who are trying to undermine his ministry and his authority uh, as he moves through those things that he wants these believers in the city of Corinth to understand. So the charge against Paul is that he is inconsistent, that he's bold when he's absent, and that he's very timid when he's present. Paul is implying that if discipline has not been reestablished in the church by the time he arrives, he's going to use his spiritual weapons to impose it. And so you can tell here that it's almost like he's speaking to them ironically or maybe sarcastically by going ahead and admitting, I who am humble when face to face with you but bold toward you and I'm away. He just kind of had just puts it right out there in front of them so that they all know this is what he's dealing with and this is what he's talking about. He's not going to talk around and pretend he doesn't know what they're saying. Uh, he wants everyone to kind of be on the same page. So despite this fact that the Corinthians really have charged Paul with being bold and strong only in his letters, Paul in writing this letter really refuses to take the bait, even though he brings it up, he's not taking the bait to blast them with apostolic commands. In fact, the language he uses has been described to some as being emotional. He desires to be heard. He desires for them to understand him. That's why he says, I entreat you. Uh, he makes his appeal using this phrasing by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. So what Paul could have done, which he didn't do, was he could have said, As an apostle of the risen and sovereign Christ, I command you. And he could have done that. He could have said, by the authority of the sovereign Lord who's commissioned me as his apostle, I order you, and then kind of give them whatever it is he wants them to do. 
Now Paul could be very stern. In 1 Corinthians in chapter 4, he said, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So there's, this, there's some tension here, in a sense, between Paul and what's going on in this church. Now he, he doesn't hate them, he loves them, he's not, you know, he's not trying to, to pull away from them, he doesn't want to just accuse them and blast them and move forward because he's right. He's not... He's not really concerned about him being right. He is on one hand because the truth is at stake. But what's more important to him is that they understand the truth as opposed to them thinking that he's right. So he has to face what these individuals are saying about him and he's got to bring it up to make his point. But he's making it clear in the way that he writes the letter and the things that he brings up that it's not about him. And he's doing the best he can uh, with that. And I do think that he does a good job. He is following the example of Christ. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now we know when you read through the life of Jesus that Jesus could be stern. He could be stern verbally and with his actions. We know that there are times that he scolded very harshly the religious leaders and even called them names. We know that when he cleansed the temple, that he cleared it out. And so he wasn't exactly real gentle when he did that. He was very stern. But it has been pointed out that even though he was using a whip, uh, it never mentions that any individual was ever hit by the whip. But he was cracking the whip as he was driving them out of the temple. But when you look at the public ministry of Jesus, it was a ministry that was characterized by meekness and by gentleness. Those two words, when you put those words together, gentleness and meekness, taken together suggests that the person who's characterized by these virtues is going to be generous in his estimates of others. Slow to take offense and well able to bear reproach, consistently above mere self-interest. I do think that describes Paul, and that describes what you and I should be. We should be generous in how we view other people. We would say, we want to give people the the benefit of the doubt. It's not a sin to do that. It's not a sin to believe uh, what they're telling you. When it becomes clear that they're not being honest, then you deal with that when you come to it. We should be slow to take offense. No matter what people say about us, it's not a thing. You know, if it's just about me, okay, well, we can, I can live with that and we can go on. And so we're, we're not, you know, on edge, ready to pounce on an individual who doesn't give us maybe the respect we think they ought to show us. We should be well able to bear reproach, the scoldings of others, whether it's deserved or not. And we should consistently, and I think all of this entails this, uh, is an example of this, we should consistently be above just mere self-interest. As we already know from Philippians, it's not wrong to take care of those things uh, that you are interested in, those things that pertain to you, but that is clearly not to be at the top of our list. We're, we're, just, we're just not interested in ourselves in that way. I think what is often the case, and I think the case is true here with the Corinthians, it seems they have confused meekness with weakness. They've confused gentleness with maybe being enslaved. They are ignoring the dominant characteristic of Christ, when they, and they claim to acknowledge Christ as Lord. You see, what they're dealing with here is, this, is the, I guess, the idea, uh, there's a picture here of humbleness. For the mature believer, humble has a very positive connotation. In the mind of the Corinthian, it had negative overtones. 
So Paul basically here is in a very gentle way asking the Corinthians to change before it's too late. And so there's, there's four things I want us to kind of be aware of because this is leading to uh, a, a point that we want to kind of unpack starting next week. And so we want to make sure we keep these things in our mind uh, so we can understand Paul's angle, where he's coming from and what he's trying to express. First of all, the precise threat that Paul is making here is given in verse 6, where he says, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So there is threat of apostolic chastisement. Again, it's not about his ego. It is about them following the way of Christ. In chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians, he says, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. So he does take this idea of discipline very seriously. Remember, as an apostle, yes, he really is the boss. He really is in charge. He's he's not uh, parading that around. But he is still, in that sense, he's the man. And so he is using his authority in that way. But he is using a specific way, which we'll see in the moment. The second thing to keep in mind is being severe or severity is not the face that Paul wants to wear. Because he says in verse 2, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness. So he does, and that's what he means by boldness there, is he doesn't want to be severe. In the New American Standard, it reads, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some. In the Amplified, he says, I entreat you when I do come to you that I may not be driven to such boldness as I intend to show toward those few who suspect us of acting according to the flesh. So Paul recognizes that the prime purpose of authority that God has given him is to build people up. That's how he is using the authority that he has. He wants to build people up. He wants them to move towards being more mature as believers. He wants them to be more well-rounded, exemplifying the characteristics of Christ in their life, personally and as they interact with each other in the church and in the world. That's, that's how he's using it. That's what his thought is. Again, verse 8, he says, For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. So again, the idea here is that he understands and his goal is to build them up as believers. And so he states that right out front again, so they will understand what his motive is and what his agenda is. Thirdly, in verse 2 again, and I've already kind of slightly mentioned it, he says, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some. So some people have pointed out here that when he says some, that what he means here is some people, and that they are differentiating that between some people and the Corinthians themselves. The idea is that these super apostles, as they are called at times, uh, and we've mentioned them several times, they are really outsiders. They have, they have infiltrated the church and they have had this agenda. 
You know, their idea was to kind of influence the people, grab the authority that Paul had, so they could be, in a sense, the boss over them. That's, that's how they're viewing Paul's authority. Paul doesn't view himself as their boss, but that's how these individuals uh, uh, understand the authority, and they want to be the ones who are in charge. In fact, we can see this, again, if you were to jump to chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, verse 11. He says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. So again, he's drawing the line in the sand, and he is drawing a distinction between himself and these super apostles. But, but as we have talked about before, and as we continue to see, the line that he draws between himself and them, he, he is not trying to say, I am better than they are. But he is trying to say he is different than they are. And he's, he is dealing with motives, and he is dealing with outcomes, and he is dealing with process, and he wants the Corinthians to see this clearly, because he wants to make sure that he can reestablish, in a sense, his reputation, but not so that they just admire him, but so they will listen to what he says when he teaches them about God. That's what's most important to him. That's, that's all that he really cares about. But he's kind of forced into this by this division that has entered into this church and this problem they've had, which they've not been dealing with. Then fourthly, we get down really to the crux of the matter. What is it specifically that they are accusing him of? Again, that is in verse 2, towards the end, where he says, As I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So that was the accusation against Paul and those close to him. That he was walking according to the flesh. That he was not spiritual. Or that he was not as spiritual as these self-proclaimed apostles were, or super apostles as, he's, as he calls them. That they're the truly spiritual ones, and he is walking according to the flesh. So what does he mean when he says, walk according to the flesh? Well, walking in the flesh, and to say it another way, is living in a worldly way. That's still kind of vague. We'll get into some, some specifics as to how that should be understood in the context of what Paul is talking about. But the term here, flesh, uh, which appears a lot in Paul's writings, usually refers to the old nature. Uh, it refers to the emotional, the mental, the, vol- the volitional qualities of a person before they have submitted themselves to God before letting Christ change them. So, we want to live in the Spirit. We want to walk according to the Spirit. That means then that emotionally, mentally, uh, my will, uh, that I, I am submitting myself to God. I am submitting myself to the Word of God. As it means to be spiritual. It, you know, it's not a mystical thing. It is, it is very practical. And so you live your life continuing to understand the Word of God. And as you learn the Word of God, you are submitting yourself to it. Uh, and you're submitting every aspect of your being uh, to that. That's why people should see differences in our actions, differences in our attitude, differences in the way that we treat each other, differences even in the way that we think about each other, uh, differences in the way we think about ourselves. All of that should continually be seen in us as we grow as Christians. So I want to unpack this accusation against Paul a little more, kind of put it in maybe a more straightforward language for us to, to understand what they're accusing Paul of. So what they're saying is this. All this has been going on in the church while Paul away. Basically, Paul is an ineffective leader. He is given to being timidly or excessively timid. He is capable of not really more than third-rate preaching. 
he has too little background in spiritual and visionary experiences to claim the allegiance of the, of the Corinthians. He simply has not attained the high standards of spirituality and leadership that they are claiming for themselves. They're saying that Paul lives and serves at the low level of the flesh and they minister as dynamic spiritual leaders whose spiritual experiences attest their superiority and whose rhetoric demonstrates their God-given graces. That's what they're accusing Paul of. There's that comparison that they want others. It's the conclusions they want them to come to. The clash between Paul and these intruders really is a clash of worldviews. Paul's worldview is shaped by the gospel. Theirs takes its form from what was praised in the segments of society where they cherish the honor that comes from individuals. In fact, what is interesting, maybe even ironic, is they are charging Paul with living according to worldly standards that were not up to their own level of spirituality. But in reality, they had so misunderstood the gospel that their own values were actually truly worldly. And they were the ones living according to the flesh. They were the ones who were egocentric and sinful and rebellious against God and the revelation that he had given them before. So as we think about this clash and what's going on, we do want to make sure that, that we can glean from this some, some things that will help us as believers today navigate the world in which we live in. Remember that it tells us in Romans, in Romans chapter 12, that we need to be careful and not allow ourselves to be conformed to the image of the world. I think the primary attack, not the only attack, but the primary attack, or the primary focus of the world, so to speak, is to cause us to think like them. To think in the same categories they think. To think in the same way they think. To make the same evaluation of things that they make. To be, you know, we're allowed to sprinkle in a few Bible verses, but the idea is to think like the world. So the idea here that, that I want to kind of bring out is this. We live in an age of very deeply ingrained subjectivism. We've been taught to think that it is somehow wrong, even evil, to say that another's value system is false. That the only absolute judgment that's widely endorsed by our society is that no absolute judgment is permissible. What suffers in this climate is truth. More precisely, the possibility of affirming the existence of any absolute truth. And we've heard that expressed in different ways, even just straightforward. People have said, yeah, we, our world in general doesn't want there to be or doesn't like absolutes. We see this especially when it comes to morality. Most issues of morality that are in the news, individuals do not want uh, the Christian view or an absolute view to take shape or to be even expressed. They hate it for several reasons. I do think that for many, one of the major underlying reasons for that is really nothing more than this. I don't point out your sin, you don't point out mine. Now, they don't use the word sin. That's really the idea. I will allow you to do whatever you want, as long as you're not technically hurting anyone, and you will let me do whatever I want, as long as I'm not hurting anyone. The world loves that. We, we, we want that. We don't want to be held accountable, much less to some absolute standard that's given by God. 
Conversely, if the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that it provides and teaches and demands is true, then that which opposes it is, to that extent, false. Remember that when individuals say things like, and you've heard a lot of this before, when people say things like, well, all religions lead to God. Okay, that's a denial of the truth of Christianity. Now, if we're going to be honest about that statement, most religions are actually very absolutist as well. You won't find a devout Muslim saying, oh yeah, all roads lead to God. They don't believe that. You talk to uh, individuals that believe in Hinduism or those who believe in other forms of religion. They do not believe that other paths lead to God. And there's some that kind of lean that way for whatever reason. But the idea is is that there's a lot of dishonesty in those kinds of statements. But it does seem at least in our culture, and I do believe it's true, that a majority of those statements are directed towards Christians. We're kind of the prevailing dominant religious view uh, around. And people just don't like, they don't like that. They want to get rid of that. Um, And that's what's behind that. Truth is exclusive of error and falsehood. So here, as Paul is dealing with all these things, Paul does not bother to dispute the prerogative that anyone has to teach a system that's contrary to the gospel. But what he does dispute is their right to do so in the church. That's the difference. We do the same thing in our society. People can believe what they want. They can express what they want. Most of the time, we don't really want there to be laws that diminish or hinder an individual's ability to express what they believe and think. But it is not that kind of freedom in a church. There shouldn't be. There's not that in the buildings of other religions either. You definitely can't go in there and just start preaching the gospel. They would do more than just politely ask you to be quiet. It would be a little more forceful than that. And so Paul is wanting them to understand that when it comes to the church, when it comes when we gather together, that the gospel is what is front and center. And everything that is taught must align with that and the truthfulness of the Word of God. And that we do not pass off error as if it were gospel truth. That's why there are individuals who have made it their point. It is a big deal to scrutinize the teaching and preaching that goes on throughout the church. Partly because because of social media and all the easy access we have to so many individuals and their access to us, false uh, teaching can be passed on much more quickly. And so there needs to be more examination and warning and explanation as to why maybe you shouldn't listen to this. In other words, there are certain individuals you shouldn't listen to. If you want to listen to them, it's America. Listen to them. But there's a warning with that. These individuals are wrong in what they say. It has nothing to do with personality, but what they say is wrong. It's what the scripture says. We can know what the scripture says, and this is against that. And we need to point that out, and that's important um, within, within Christianity. There's another reason why a lot of people kind of may respond negatively to Paul and his style and what he says, and this clash of worldviews, is that these individuals that have kind of infiltrated the church, those who are really seeking to infiltrate our church, whether it's an, an, an actual individual or they're trying to infiltrate uh, our church just through their ideology, is that not only do we have an unscrutinized subjectivism, 
It's a great term. I did not make that up. I just saw that and said, I want to copy that. Unscrutinized subjectivism. Just want to use that. It makes you sound smart. Uh, but anyway, but we inhabit a place and time in our history that is dominated by cultural diversity. Now, cultural diversity, it's a very healthy thing. It can enlarge our horizons, and in some cases it can increase our narrow tolerances, and that's a good thing. However, there are certain things we have to remember when it comes to that, and that is this. Regardless of the race, ethnicity, or culture that Paul was serving at when he was serving, he recognized that the gospel is a non-negotiable. We have to be there. The gospel is is a non-negotiable truth. When we say Jesus Christ is the only way, we should say Christ is the only way. We're speaking of the gospel. There is no other way to be reconciled to God. We are separated from God. There is nothing we can do to make up to God for what we've done. We are condemned. We are already condemned. Remember that when individuals die, this idea that people have in their mind, where you stand before God or you stand at the gate and they're either looking for your name or they're trying to determine how much good you did and how much evil, that that is not an accurate picture of what happens when you die. If you are standing before anyone, no one's looking up to see if you're guilty. You're guilty. If you don't know Christ, you're guilty. It's a sentencing. The great white throne judgment is never is there is never being nothing is done there to determine your guilt or innocence. It's determining your sentencing. Only those who are condemned stand there. It's kind of like if you go to court today and you and you go on trial and you're found guilty, and then they say your sentencing will be you know a month from now. When you go back, there's no rehashing of whether you're guilty or not. That was determined. You're there for one thing only. That's to hear the judge deliver the sentence of what you're going to have to serve. In most societies, relatively few individuals are willing to concede the moral limitations of whatever their inherited values are and learn to interpret them by an outside standard and, if necessary, curtail or abandon them. That's, again, where the gospel clashes with worldviews, where it classes, classes with culture. There are many wonderful things about many different cultures. But not everything in every culture is wonderful. Maybe much of it is evil. It's wrong. Why do we say that? Are we saying that because we want everyone to be like an American? Well, you may want to, but the, the better way is, no, I want them to follow what the scriptures say. That is where the moral standard comes from. That is where the standard of righteousness is. Sometimes we find it easier to interpret the gospel in terms of our own received culture than the other way around. In fact, that's, you may have heard individuals say this, but as, as American Christians, we need to be aware of that. Everyone has to be aware of this, where we don't bring our own way of thinking or our prejudices, our preconceived ideas, to the scripture in seeking to understand it. I want to do the best I can to put that aside and just ask myself, what does the scripture say? Understand that, then take that and then evaluate my culture as well as anybody else's. That's what we need to do. That's what we should be doing. That's what Christians do. 
Biblically speaking, again, all races and ethnicities and cultures are infected with sin. So to that extent, the gospel will always clash with any of them. To the extent that people who spring from various races, and that includes ours, and ethnicities and cultures who profess Christ uh, in, who profess faith uh, and allegiance to Jesus Christ, must regard the good news of Jesus Christ as the controlling factor. So the controlling factor in my life and your life is not my political affiliation, is not who I'm loyal to nationally, it's not my patriotism, it is Jesus Christ is the controlling factor. Period. And that's where we, have to, where we must be. That's what Paul is getting into. The gospel will purify and transform any culture. Maybe more accurately, we can say that the gospel will purify and transform the people from any cultural heritage who bow unreservedly to Jesus Christ. Which is why, in many cases, people see a conversion to Christ as treason. When I was in Mauritius, as I talked to individuals who were raised as Hindus and had become Christians, their families, the predominant view is that when they converted to Christianity, they were committing treason against the family and religion and their culture and their race. Because these non-believers clearly understood that when their family members became believers, there was much they could, that they would no longer do. Because it was in violation to what the scripture said. And so that's how they view it. We've heard the stories, again, in Muslim countries, that if an individual converts to Christianity, uh, you know, you've heard of honor killings and all that, all that really exists because they see that as a rejection of their culture. Now, they see it as a rejection of their entire culture. It isn't. But it is a rejection of any aspect of that culture that isn't in alignment with the word of God. And people don't want that. They don't like that. And so that's the kind of conflict. And we should even expect that even in our own country. You do see that in our society. In our society, we know that we're now kind of in this period of time, which is not going to end soon, where tolerance is kind of given a different definition. And so if we proclaim what we believe to be true about the gospel, we will be viewed as being intolerant. So there's a clash that's there. You, You can't, there's no way to mitigate that. And you can just you can go ahead and say the same thing and say it more nicely, but we have to say the same thing. Christ is the only way, and that's just and that's it. So by this uh, by this means, uh, the gospel then will modify or eliminate many of the culturally transmitted values of any new believer. They in turn, those believers, uh, are going to influence their culture and their society in the same way that salt exerts its influence in food. That's what we are to be. Now what we have to be aware of, and what's going on here in Corinth, is there's always going to be some who are controlled by a lightly Christianized version of their own culture. We face that in our country all the time. This idea that we can take our, our patriotism, so to speak, our loyalty to our country, the fact that we are Americans, and we kind of want to mix it. You know, we kind of have like a dough mix, and we want to put in Christianity and kind of develop this new, maybe a new American, of which is lightly Christian. And we have to reject that. Now, I'm not saying denounce being an American. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, is that being a Christian is first, period. And I evaluate everything else that's American by what the Bible says. 
So I'm not going to become a non-American. I'm not going to hate my country. But I am going to be very much aware of the wrong and sin that my country does. And where society is in error. I think there are many great things about our country. Absolutely. I'm solidly in that corner. But I am not looking to add anything from America to my faith. That's not what I'm trying to do. And we need to be aware of that. We can do that sometimes unwittingly. And so that's why we have to be on our guard to make sure we don't do that. In other words, our controlling values spring more from our inherited culture, even when those values might be more deeply pagan and not necessarily Christian. Christian language may be there, as it is in our country, uh, yet the control lies not with the gospel, but with the pervasive values of the surrounding society and heritage. And at that point, Paul is very inflexible. Let me read to you a statement from D.A. Carson. Um, D.A. Carson, great Bible scholar. Fantastic. Very insightful. Um, One of my favorites. And he says this, As far as Christians are concerned, wherever there is a clash between a cherished inherited culture and the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the former that must give way and accept modification and transformation. Failure at this point calls in question your allegiance to the gospel. Unreserved commitment to the priorities of the inherited culture, with select elements of Christianity being merely tacked on, brings with it the inevitable conclusion that the Jesus being preached is another gospel. The gospel being proclaimed is a different gospel. And those who proclaim such an evangel message are deceitful workmen masquerading as apostles of Christ. That's why it is important that we're always thinking about these things and making sure that we are living out and holding up... When I say a purified form of Christianity, it's not that Christianity needs to be purified from the scriptures because it's somehow smudged. It's not. But my understanding of it needs to be purified. And I am always want to be extracting from it maybe these preconceived ideas that I have that can kind of muddy the water a little bit. And, so, so, and that can be hard to do at times. But we want to make sure that we are unreservedly, as believers, committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul here, in, in the simple way, remember that the people there are looking at the way a person sounds, their educational level, um, their experiences, the way they talk about things. They're looking at, at those attributes as being to them what is a great spiritual leader. And, and these individuals have pointed out Paul is none of these things. Paul wants these believers to stop thinking like the world and thinking those are the most important things. They can be helpful. They're not most important. What is most important is, what is the truth? What is the gospel? Does it line up with the truth of the scripture? That's it. If that's presented in a a magnificent way, or maybe even in a monotone, it just doesn't matter. What is the truth? And I want to make sure that we adhere to that. Professing Christians who, like the Corinthians, show themselves to be profoundly sympathetic to a non-Christian orientation of values, we need to at least examine ourselves to make sure that we really are in the faith. And so what Paul is doing here is he is begging them to reevaluate these intruders. In essence, he is begging these Corinthians to return to the truth of the gospel and the teachings and example of Christ and reevaluate the doctrines of these intruders. 
So what we're going to do over the next several weeks is we're going to take a few things that are being passed off within the church today, in America primarily, that are being passed off as spiritual truth. We're going to compare those things and, and hopefully show and recognize how many of those things are based on the flesh and not the spirit. And, and always go back then to the truth of the Word of God and what it says. So that we then will see maybe more uh, realistically uh, and, and more profoundly uh, and more, I would say, maybe even obviously how it is that we can be lured or how Christians can be lured away from the truth of the Scripture and how we can get back to what the Word of God says. And how we can do that. Again, when I say collectively, I don't mean that in a communistic sense. But the idea is, is that the truth is there in the Word of God. And, as, and even as I explain it, as we then look at that, uh, you will see that, that I am not twisting the Scripture. We are simply declaring exactly what is there, explaining what is there, and that it is the others who have uh, misused the Scripture. We, we can come to that understanding. Um, and I would do my best to never present to you what's called the straw man argument, taking the weakest argument that some heretical teacher has and using that and say, see how dumb that is, and make fun of it. No, we want to take it in its strongest sense, which some of them don't have much strength at all behind them. But nonetheless, um, be honest with those things and take a look at what they're actually saying, where that comes from, which again I think is in accordance with First John and the testing of the Spirit that he encourages us to do, so we can think again biblically through these issues so that we are not led astray not only by these things but things that will be similar to them uh, and that we can strictly adhere to the truth of the word of God let's pray Father we thank you again for uh, Paul and really the magnificence of Paul in the sense of his incredible humbleness and yet his refusal to allow individuals to get away with misleading others his refusal to allow untruth to go unchallenged. His absolute commitment to the word of God and to the gospel, regardless of what it may cost him, as far as whether he's popular or what people think of him, or whatever the case may be. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at Scripture and we see that he has said before that Paul is not concerned that we follow him, but he does want us to imitate him. And so may we imitate him in that way. And we may be students of the word that we may meditate and think on the word, that we may think correctly, that we may live rightly, that, Father, we may continue to mature as believers. And along with that, Father, we know from your word that you've told us that as those things take place, our joy will not only remain, but it will grow. It will be multiplied. And, Father, if there is anything that we would love more in this world is for us to have joy, especially in the midst of the difficulties that we find ourselves in. We are thankful, Father, that you've given to us this path that we can follow, that you've given to us your word, all the tools that we need. We thank you, Lord, you've given us your spirit that resides in us, that will guide and direct us along the way. So, Father, we ask that we be encouraged. And as always, Father, we do pray for those here who may not know Christ, may not know what all the fuss is about, or maybe they're still uncomfortable with the idea of there being absolutes when it comes to truth. We pray, Lord, that you will convince them of, of the absolute truth of, of the statement, that there is absolute truth. That they will become convinced of the truthfulness and the rightness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that they, like we were at one time, and we are still susceptible to, of being blinded by our own sin and unbelief. And they will come to you and believe in Christ and have their sins forgiven and be united with you as we are with you by your Spirit. 
So Father, we thank you again and ask that you would bring these things to our mind throughout the week that we may think of them. And so Father, we thank you. And again, we ask for your blessing as we are dismissed in Christ's name. Amen.